welcome to the UCD Sociology Podcast. Um, I'm joined here at the Geary Institute of Public Policy this morning with Professor Kieran Allen um, from um, Sociology here at UCD. And also, um, Professor Allen is my supervisor for my thesis. You're very, very welcome here this morning. Thanks for taking part. Thank you very much, Grania. <laughs> so we are here... Um, to discuss um, one of the key thinkers on the politics and society course, who is Karl Marx. And you're very familiar with Marx's work. I am indeed. I wrote a book on uh, Marx and the alternative to capitalism. And I teach a course on the classical sociologists. And I spend some time going through Marx's ideas. Fantastic. So just to give a little bit of kind of history about your work and um, what, what you've been doing. So you're very inter- are you interested in Marxism in Ireland with specifically or more interested in his theories? Well, both. Um, one of the things about Ireland is that people tell you it's a very coherent national community. But from an early age, uh, I thought there was a lot of power structures in Ireland that were unfair and unequal. So one of the things I've been doing as I uh, became an academic is to try to apply Marxism to understanding Irish society. So the first book I did was on the politics of James Connolly. Um, And he's a very important figure because uh, certainly when I was at school, we were told that he was one of the 1916 leaders and that he was the equivalent of maybe somebody who'd been around the Vincent de Paul. He had a kind of a social justice concern, but nobody said he was a Marxist. Now, if you actually read James Connolly, you'll find he is a very strong Marxist. So the first book I did was to indicate the politics of James Connolly and bring out his Marxism and discuss his Marxism. Second book I did was on um, Fianna Fáil, which again is an interesting subject because at that time, I wrote that book I think back in the 90s, uh, Fianna Fáil uh, were getting the votes from all social groups in our society, workers, farmers, big business types and so on. And I was trying to figure out, well, why does this happen? So I uh, looked at the history of Fianna Fáil and how they related to the workers' movement and provided a Marxist analysis of that, and I'm glad to say or less predicted their decline, uh, which I again celebrate. Um, and then I did a book on the corporate takeover of Ireland, which is uh, about how this country is run by big business and how many of the politicians, they're not quite puppets on the string, but they're not very far away from it sometimes. So it's a detailed examination of how corporations influence our health service, our environmental policy and the like. So in many ways it's a Marxist analysis. And then I've done books on um, the economic crash, Ireland's economic crash. Another book with Brian O'Boyle, an economist on austerity in Ireland. And now I'm working on a book on the Ireland's a tax haven. And that's something I'm particularly interested in because one of the things I find is that sociologists tend to spend a lot of their time researching the poor, the people at the bottom of society, uh, worrying about how do we integrate migrants into society. But there's not enough studies, in my view, done of the elites, uh, whether it's the bankers, the church, uh, or in this case, the people who've turned this country into a tax haven. So the rest, rest of us pay all the taxes and some of them get off scot-free. One simple example, if you want to know what Marxism is about, look at how Goldman Sachs, the biggest company in the world, referred to as a vampire squid, but I think it was the Rolling Stone magazine. 
some of its companies, its property companies that have brought up millions of properties in Ireland, pay 250 euros in tax. Now, a cleaning woman who gets up at 7 in the morning will pay a lot more than 250 euros in tax. So, if you want to know what Marx is about, I think that simple example sums it up. Okay, thank you. And can I just ask, how did you begin to become influenced by Mark within your own Marx within your own work? And how did you kind of, I mean, like, how did you get involved to this extent and, and your interest kind of become so honed in one specific avenue? You were, um, you were a primary school teacher originally? Well, I was indeed a primary school teacher. Before that, I was a student uh, at the end of the 60s. And my first experience of encountering power was standing up to the Catholic Church, who told us that we had to have a bishop's exam to examine. We had a bishop in Galway at the time called Bishop Brown, who insisted that every student in Galway uh, does an exam in religion. Now, being at that time a very religious person, I said, no, you can't give us a grade for our spirituality. And we organise a school strike. We have a strike. Because it was the 60s. When we you say we, was it we us, or was few, it you? A few, <laughs> few of us. We organise a school strike. And then you find how the power structures come down, particularly on school students. Uh, your parents are hauled in. It's like as if you had committed the greatest scandal ever. Uh, so that got me to think about power. That was pretty brave. I mean, I mean there will hopefully be a lot of secondary school students listening to this podcast and I mean I guess that's something that I'm particularly interested in within my own PhD work at the moment is how young people learn political values and learn to take political action themselves and I guess maybe my own experience of being a secondary school teacher and my own experience like yourself of being a secondary school student at one stage is that there aren't really that many outlets within the secondary school forum to be able to engage in a democratic manner and say how you feel and um, kind of engage in any meaningful way with the power structures of that. So that was pretty brave for... Well, no, absolutely, that's absolutely correct. But, I mean, you have to ask why that is the case. I mean, schools are organised in a very hierarchical fashion. Uh, in Ireland, there's a big emphasis on rote learning. Uh, and to this day... Whether you agree or disagree, and I believe, for example, people from an early age form serious opinions, you have to do compulsory religion. Now, why should somebody who's age 15 or 16, who doesn't believe in God, or who's not a Catholic, why should they have to be forced to attend a religion class? Why can't they even put on earmuffs while the uh, religion class is going on? So, I would encourage rebellion. I think that people should... The way you learn politics is by standing up for what you believe, and you may not start with where you end up but the main thing is to start by being a rebel right <laughs> which leads us to Marx I suppose exactly. um, so Marx I mean this um, he was born in um, 1818 so this is the 200 year anniversary of his birth um, and why is he still so important 200 years later well let me just connect to the last conversation uh, in Marx's day when you went to school there was a charge of blasphemy. In other words, if you said anything about religion, not only might you be uh, sacked as a teacher, you'd be hauled off to prison. So when Marx was at school, uh, he had the amazing experience of seeing two of his teachers hauled out of school and charged with blasphemy. Now, obviously, that got the young person thinking, and he began to examine power and how it functions in society. And his first main um, focus was on religion. 
naturally, because that was the, seemed to be the uh, main form of oppression that he encountered. And he read a man called Ludwig Feuerbach, who wrote a brilliant little book called The Essence of Christianity, where he kind of turned the tables on things and he said that whereas we're told God created human beings, why not try to look at the other way around and say, well, human beings created God? I mean, if you think about it, God is supposed to be uh, all-wise, all-beautiful, all-loving, but sure human beings could have these qualities of being wise, loving, creative, and so on. So Farback's point was uh, human beings transfer their own qualities onto a god, and then that in turn demeans them. They feel that they're not quite up to the mark, that they're miserable little sinful characters, and so on. So Marx was very impressed by this idea, but then he asked a further question, which Feuerbach didn't answer, or didn't, rather didn't answer adequately, which was, why would people do that? Why would people, what is the reason why so many people, uh, not just about religion, but, if you like, create themselves power structures which come to dominate them. Now, that's a very, that question itself is a very interesting question. And that led Marx into looking at, well, what is people's experience on a day-to-day -day world, in a day-to-day -day life? And the experience is that when you go to work, you are doing all the creativity. Uh, you're coming up with ideas, I mean, think of a carpenter or a plumber, for example, how to do something, but nevertheless, your efforts are going in to uh, fill the pockets of somebody who's hired you. They often have just, they're doing nothing. They're standing about with their arms folded, telling you what to do. So your actual day-to-day -day experience is of, a, of helping to create a power over you uh, that in turn comes to mean, oh, I'm just a carpenter, I'm just a plumber, I'm not as expert as those people. And therefore it's from that overall effect what Marx called alienation that he begins a critique of modern capitalist society, which I think is tremendously relevant today. Yes. Um, so, can I just ask, well, the criticisms of Marx, I mean, like, that you've put across a very good example of Marx's theory and how, you know, like the example of the plumber or the carpenter or whatever. But the reality is, isn't it, that this is the structure that already exists and people are born into a society where, I mean, what, what is the alternative? Is that people would create cooperatives and work together like that? So are you suggesting that people should, or Marx would suggest, that people should not work for somebody else and instead come up with better means of working, either A, working for themselves or working together as a cooperative? There's a lot in that question. Sorry. To, <laughs> I think there was about three separate down. questions. Three, three parts. <laughs> the world is as it is. Well, that's a very, uh, if you like, common phrase. We are where we are. And the implication, I think, is that nothing changes. In other words, that uh, we're born into this society and as one writer, I think Mark Fisher said, it's easier to imagine the end of the planet than the end of capitalism. Now, there's a problem with this, and one of the use a fancy term, Marx was extremely influenced by, was a notion of dialectics, which is that instead of seeing anything in static terms, in other words, that uh, we look at each other here on an interview, and you've got a certain demeanour, and I've got a certain demeanour, but in fact, I start off as a toddler, and presumably you start off as a toddler, and we age and we die. These are facts. In other words, life is about constant change. Okay, 
to put to quote the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, you can't step in the same river twice. Because the river's changing. Right. But your little toe's changing as well. Yes. Okay? So rather than thinking that here we are in capitalism and it'll always exist, let's take an historical perspective. When we take an historical perspective, we find, first of all, that for most of human existence, uh, there wasn't even a class society. People lived as nomads uh, in what's called hunter-gatherer society. Uh, it's not a natural thing for people to say, I'm just out for myself and I want to be greedy and my greed is good for society. These are all ideas that only came into existence in the last two or three hundred years. So the first point to make is capitalism came into existence and capitalism came out of it. We can go out of existence. Or, to be frank, if it doesn't go out of existence, the planet may go out of existence. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you're saying, um, what's the alternative? Now, Marx here, strangely enough, uh, people might see this as a weakness, I personally don't, didn't sit down to write the blueprint for a new society. Uh, a lot of other people had done that. Uh, Robert Owen, Fourier, a man from Cork called William Thompson, had written out a blueprint of a new society. The problem here is, well, I've got my blueprint, so I'm the prophet, I've got the map, and the rest of you, would you please follow me and I'll bring you to the new society. Mm -hmm. that, that's not Marx's approach. Marx's approach is that within the existing society, there are contradictions which lead people into struggle against power structures. Let me just maybe go back on that a little bit. No matter what's in your head, Someday you're going to find you're without a home or your wages have been cut and you start to struggle against this. Rebellion is going to happen in this, in this pricking in a class society. And the new society will come out of the type of collective struggles, the type of ways people have to organise in order to uh, overturn the power structures. Hopefully. Not guaranteed, but hopefully. Now... That's very general and vague, so I presume you want something more specific. Give me the detail. Where's the, where's the new society and so on? If you want to see this, go to uh, Marx's book, uh, The Civil War in France, which is about an uprising of workers in Paris in 1871, where he begins to, uh, again, not write his own blueprint, but work from the actual experience of people in struggle, what type of society they're trying to create. So from this, we can outline a number of examples. First, more democracy. Again, the idea of Marx is communism, and therefore for a one-party state. This is nonsense. Marx wants more democracy. And what he means by that is that people who are voted in to represent the population should be on the same, more or less, wage, the average wage. They shouldn't be getting, like we have in Ireland, 94,000, which is what a TD gets. They should be on the same wage as the people they represent. That means they'll know what happens when you enforce cuts on people. Uh, people should have a right to recall their elected representatives. In other words, if somebody goes forward for election and you, uh, they tell you lies, not an uncommon pattern mm -hmm. in Ireland, you should have some mechanism so you can recall them. Mm -hmm. That there shouldn't be this separation between, more complicated idea, uh, between the executive uh, and the administration. In other words, you shouldn't have a situation where, for example, in the doll. People sit there and talk, and then you pass a law, 
But who's actually going to implement that law? The people who's going to implement that law are the higher civil servants, the judiciary, and so on, who are often drawn from different class, upper class people and so on. Who have different interests. Who have different interests, absolutely. So, for example, you try passing a law in Ireland saying that we want every single corporation to pay a minimum rate of tax uh, of, let's say, for argument, let's well, just even say 12.5%. They must all pay 12.5%. What do you think is going to happen? The corporations are ringing up their officials in the Department of Finance saying, oh, this will mean the end of civilization. The officials in the Department of Finance will find all sorts of ways of obstructing your bill. And you'll find, this is, by the way, the historic experience, it doesn't quite happen. So Marx's argument is, in order to bring about change, you have to have people involved more democratically themselves in bringing about change. What does that mean? It means, for example, uh, in a workplace, the people who work, they should take hold of the workplaces. I know this is a fantastic idea, right? They should take hold of the workplaces and they should make decisions on how it runs. Uh, I work in UCD here. Uh, there's, what, 2,000 people work in UCD, maybe 20,000 students, and we have what they call a senior management team of, I think, what, about 10 or 12 people. Now, are you seriously telling me that these people have more brain power in their 12 heads than the whole of the rest of people who work here and who study here. So Marx is about taking control of your workplace, of your society, and of extending it democratically. And why don't people do it then? Like, I mean, I've, I've had so many different podcasts now over the last while, I'm starting to get confused with who said what. But we're discussing freedom and why people don't go after freedom? Why don't they make it better? And it's because it's difficult. It's difficult to rise up against, you know, the powers that be, power structures. It's difficult to mobilise yourselves as a large, coherent team of people that all are saying they are singing from the same hymn sheet, effectively. And also, it's something that needs to constantly be maintained. Or is what Marx is saying that we should just put in place a new structure and then that's it, that'll be a new thing and no, 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 we, people have to rise up. You can't just put in place a new structure. Uh, first of all, people do rise up. That's the, I, I want to just challenge this organised pessimism that is put about, right? If people hadn't risen up, uh, people like me would not be sitting here having this podcast uh, talking about Marx and being hauled off to prison. It's because yes. people rose up and fought for democratic rights. Women would not be voting if suffragettes hadn't gone and rose, rose up and fought for rights. So people do rise up. Revolutions occur. I mean, I know that the people who run society want to instill in people a notion, ah, sure, the way that's the way it is, you can't do anything about it. But people rise up all the time. Yeah, I know, I know, I know people do. In, but I feel, and this is just my own personal observation, that it's in more in extreme circumstances or when something just becomes that, that it's been so difficult for so long that people say, okay, enough is enough, this is it. But I feel like people generally, once they're kept at a certain level of happiness, and this could be used against them, I guess, as well, that once people are kind of kept at a certain level of contentedness, that they don't tend to rise up because of that, what I was saying, that it's too much, it's too difficult. Like it's difficult, it's a really difficult process to fight for your freedom or your personal rights or whatever else. And if you're enjoying a certain level of happiness within your life, of comfort within your life, that there, there's some breaking point once the, you're kind of going below a certain level of comfort or happiness or whatever, ease within your life, that that's when, okay, things need to change. But I guess governments or the powers that be are good at gauging, you know, that level of when people are just 
are, are going to, to assert themselves and, and rise up. What do you think about that? Right, there's a lot in that. But look, first of all, this is a very complicated question, right, about when do people rise up? Because people rise up in different circumstances and so on. Let me just challenge your idea that people rise up only when uh, it's getting tough. Uh, not necessarily, funnily enough. I mean, if, if you take the Wall Street crash of 1929, you have a terrible economic collapse, or for that matter, the Irish crash of 2008. When it got suddenly so bad, people did not rise up. Um, so even though everything you expect in terms of living standards is taken, taken from you, it doesn't necessarily mean people rise up. Contra- well, people responded as opposed to rose up in, in defence. I mean, they responded in the same way that Irish people have done for generations. So they exited, they took off and emigrated and left to other countries, okay. which is a rising up of a sort. I mean, it's a protest of a sort, a silent protest, but it's not this voicing protest. I, I wouldn't agree it's a protest. I think it's a, way, a matter of individual survival. But, but nevertheless, um, but the point is I was going to contrast that with, say, 68 in France. In 68 in France, which again we're at the anniversary of, uh, you have a relatively, uh, I don't want to use affluent society, but people, living standards were rising, um, but nevertheless at that particular point people rose up and challenged the actual society. In 1968 in Northern Ireland, Catholics who had been downtrodden for decades suddenly are inspired by the American civil rights movement to set up the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement, and they move. So therefore, the circumstances in which people rise up, it's very hard to draw general rules, and it's quite a complicated uh, situation. The other point I just want to challenge is the notion that governments know what they're doing. Now, of course they know what they're doing in one sense. They have all the sort of so-called uh, experts, including academics, advising them on how to... Uh, if you like, present policy papers and marshal their arguments and they have a PR team. Look at I me, mean, look at Leo Varadkar. I mean, the man is obsessed the with his PR team. Yes, yesterday, I think we were told, he even said, we need to get anonymous people to appear to, re- to yeah. agree with the governments. Yeah. So, so, I mean, okay, right. they, they're into all that. But I have always resisted the idea that the elite are all powerful. I mean, this is the problem with conspiracy theorists, which... which are often quite common these it, is, is it that it's an illusion of power that they're... No, it's, not, it's not an illusion, it's power. But first of all, they often get divided between each other. They often, because capitalism is a system which pushes people into competition. So they're often divided. Secondly, they often overestimate their power. Uh, and thirdly, they often misjudge the mood of the people uh, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, think about the water charges movement in Ireland. Do we think the elite knew exactly what they were doing and were able to manipulate it and so on? No, they messed up. We defeated them. So it's important to understand that governments have a huge amount of power, but they're not all powerful and they're subject to certain pressures. Lastly, however, just to go back to your question, why don't people rise up? Through a, tr- a combination of reasons. Number one, capitalism operates by dividing people. So it will promote... Uh, notions of social division. So think about it. Think about the Ireland's housing crisis at the moment. Uh, people are desperate. 10,000 people don't have homes. But what does the sort of Irish independent want to convey to you? That maybe there's too many unmother- unmarried mothers getting too much in social welfare. Or these migrants are coming in and they're taking your house. In other words, they want you to look at other people at the bottom of society and fight each other over the crumbs. And that happens whether you're in a workplace or in society. So 
division, uh, capitalism both unites people, but it also divides people. And therefore, that's one mechanism why people don't um, revise up. And the last mechanism, just to, again, just to maybe introduce it, is uh, what Marx called ideology. Now, by ideology, he doesn't just mean you have a political set of ideas. He means that a framework is generated through the schools, the universities, the mass media, which effectively, um, they're one very important aspect in how you think about the world. And I would say one of the sort of dominant features of the ideology of, our, of, of, the ideology of modern capitalist society is the ideology of fatalism. In other words, that we know you're sussed out and you know how the world works, but we're telling you there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, the world is as it is. And therefore, what we find in modern society is a cynicism about power structures, but also a lack of belief in the capacity of people to change those power structures. So these ideologies are around, but fortunately, ideologies also have contradictions. Uh, people find, all of a sudden, well, maybe we can have power. I mean, think about the number of people, the number of women in Ireland who were shamed into saying, uh, oh, I must hide my, the fact I had an abortion, uh, I must go along with what the Catholic Church says. But we built a movement to change that. So if you like, the ideology says you can't change things, how does that explain how marches that start off with a few hundred, say five years ago, grow to 40,000 for the right of women to have free, legal and safe abortion? And then all of a sudden we find politicians like Vradkar, who was against abortion, saying, oh, I'm now a liberal. So things do change and people's experience sometimes clashes with the dominant ideology. Can I ask about Ireland's position in terms of capitalism? Like... How, I mean, so, but could you give me a list of maybe the five most capitalist countries in the world and where you think Ireland compares on that list? How, how, how capitalist are we as a society? And are we aware as a society of the level of capitalism that we have? Or are we kind of deluded into thinking that we're maybe a lot more socialist than we are? Well, we're certainly not socialist. I think probably a lot of people think that we've got a society that is helpful to each other and that is interested in the common good and that if bad comes to worse, we will all be looked out for. I think, I genuinely think... Let's make a distinction between the political elite, the ruling class and the, if you like, sentiments of a lot of people, right? And that goes back to the point about ideology Mm -hmm. and people's experience. So in terms of the ruling class and the political elite... We are living in the most capitalist economy in the world. Here. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Um, You have corporations, I've just given the example of Goldman Sachs, but I could have talked about Apple or uh, many of the vulture funds. They are facilitated by an army of lawyers, accountants, uh, hacks in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and they pay no tax. I mean, literally, they pay no tax. I mean, it's incredible. That if you think about it, uh, people who work so hard and sometimes pay uh, social insurance stamps and have to wait for years for a hip operation, they get very little. But these people get everything. So how can that level of inequality be justified if it wasn't for the fact that our political elite is so beholden to the business class that they will do anything for them? Now, by contrast... 
Um, the population of Ireland, I mean, you don't want to romanticise this, but there is a decent, there is a basic decency in people that has come from, uh, sometimes, you know, again, you don't want to exaggerate it, maybe I am exaggerating, an experience of colonialism, uh, of sometimes people sticking together in terms of unions. We used to have very strong unions in this country. Relatively strong tradition of community organisation. All of this exists in Ireland. And it, meant, it means that there is some sense of social solidarity uh, and that often clashes with the most naked expression of what we call neoliberalism. And Marx felt that it, that capitalism was inevitably doomed and that people would eventually rise up and take over and socialism would, would win the day. Is that fair enough to well, say? Well, I think you can find certain phrases in Marx that would indicate he thought that was inevitable. I happen to think they are rhetorical flourishes. I prefer the view put across by Rosa Luxemburg, which is that we face an alternative of capitalism or barbarism. Sorry, no, of, sorry, of socialism, I should not. Socialism or barbarism. Uh, and that, what that implies is that the, the decline of capitalism, the contradictions and problems of capitalism, I think are inevitable. They are. Uh, for example, uh, the fact that capitalism has to grow continually by means of continual accumulation does come up against the limits of the planet in terms of, we're now seeing it, in terms of environmental uh, warming. In a more complicated fashion, we'd have to take a longer time to discuss about it, I think the rate of profit that returns to capital investment over a longer period tends to decline, and therefore capitalists tend to move their money into the financial markets or try to intensify exploitation of people at work. All of this are features of a decline of a system that's I mean, if you just look at it, I mean, the, compare capitalism today to capitalism in the 60s, particularly in the advanced industrial countries. It is not a system that's guaranteeing uh, more security or more, uh, a better standard of living. So I think the decline in nature of capitalism is inevitable. Whether or not people rebel, that is not inevitable. Uh, that's a matter of political organisation and political argumentation. And whether or not people rebel or move to the far right, the lessons of history means there's no inevitability about this. I mean, look what's happening in Europe at the moment. But he does believe that it will be a revolution that will need, it'll need to be something radical to topple capitalism. Yeah, you'll have to have a revolution. By that, what do you mean by revolution? In other words, uh, what Marx is arguing is that, again, the notion that we're taught in school that if you want to bring about change, get elected to the local council, then get elected to the Dáil, and then get a majority, and that'll bring change. That, I'm afraid, is a little bit of a fairy story. When you get elected to the local council, you'll find that the local uh, chief executive officer, unappointed, will dictate to the councillors what's to happen. In Dublin, for example, 51 of the 53 councillors voted against having an incinerator. Look across Dublin Bay, and you see a dirty incinerator, because the CEO decided it. When you go to the Dáil, uh, you are, we have the cabinet meets, its minutes are not available for about 21 years, uh, it relates to a power structure in the state that's not entirely transparent. So I don't think that by purely parliamentary methods you can bring about change. A revolution means that people begin to see that they themselves are the only people 
that can bring about change through collective effort. So we're talking about mass mobilisation, we're talking about strikes, and we're talking about the removal of the present power structures. Yes. Well, like, I actually was dipping a divine. I did a podcast with uh, on Paolo Freire, and, you know, obviously he was influenced by Marx. But I guess one of the main points about Freire's work was that, you know, people needed to be aware that they were the oppressed in the first place. And I guess that goes back to my question there again, is that, you know, and this isn't a conspiracy theory, but, you know, like, I mean... It's in, it's in the ruling party, whether it's the elites, the, as in the people who um, have plenty of money within the society, or whether it's the government, um, you know, isn't it within, isn't it in their interest to make sure that people don't realise that they're oppressed? Of course. And they will do that by encouraging division and by telling you that you live in the best of all possible worlds. But it doesn't necessarily mean that people always believe them. And, uh, I mean, Paolo Freire is correct that people need to realise they're oppressed or they need to realise they're part of a working class. That doesn't just happen through pedagogy, through teaching. It happens when people, and I don't think Freire would entirely disagree, engage in struggle. It's when you do something, you can spend your life talking. It's when you actually engage in struggle collectively, you begin to see that we have power. But in addition to that, you need political awareness. You need to begin to understand what capitalism is, what the system is, how the power structure. You need to be work. equipped with the knowledge and the, I guess, a certain amount of confidence as well going in. I mean, like somebody who has a background and is educated in politics and society, for example, and understanding policy and understanding the historical significance of whatever related to that policy has a much, or do they, have a better chance of instigating change than somebody who just senses an injustice? No, I don't necessarily agree. I mean, if you think about it, um, take someone like James Larkin or James Connolly. Mm -hmm. Uh, James Larkin or James Connolly were from the poorest of the poor. Their level of education was, what, up to maybe age 14. Um, But there's a brilliant play by Bertolt Brecht called The Mother... And it is about a Bolshevik in Russia. He's writing leaflets, his mother putting him into workplace and so on. And his mother is illiterate. And as she becomes more and more to uh, agree with his approach, she has to learn to read and write. In other words, the desire to understand increases when you become involved in a struggle. Yes, yeah. And as you become involved in a struggle, you see the world differently. And by the way, the people you find, you find that the people who talk so much about I want to do this, that, the other. Sometimes the struggle, they're the, the people who are least likely to fight. And similarly, the people who, are, who talk so little are often the best fighters. So the world changes when you start struggling. Secondly, look, I want to encourage everybody to do politics and uh, society courses. That's great. Mm. But I don't think that these courses escape from ideology. There, there are power structures in society. And certainly from my own experience... But, sorry, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just, I'm just trying to think of, like, you know, tangible examples of things. Like, I'm just thinking about the... the was it two young guys in Jobstown who had to go through God knows how many court cases in relation to the incident with Joan Burton in, um, in, in Jobstown during the water, the, the water charges. Yeah. You know, it's trying to stand up and make a stance and... Like, I'm not making any kind of... I'm, I'm going to be completely impartial about it. Yeah. But my point is, I suppose, it's difficult 
as a as a young person specifically um or is it i mean like those two young fellas found themselves in a very difficult and challenging situation as a result of as they say standing up for what they felt was right at the time but then you're in a very different situation obviously you're much more experienced you're within an academic realm um you kind of have the confidence I suppose and the knowledge you're very assured of the knowledge that you have whereas I'm just thinking about young people and particularly the young people who are listening to this podcast if they if they want to make a stand against something that's they they feel is wrong it 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 do they have to be careful I guess do they have to make sure that they read up on it well before they do it you know this is the the question you know like it's it's a difficult time I suppose when you're kind of well, first of all, you're absolutely right about Jobstown. Let's just remember what happened in Jobstown. Here we have a working class community that decided to protest against a minister that was depriving lone parents of uh, their uh, income. That's what actually happened. And then when they do it, we find that the full force of the state is used to criminalise those people, including essentially the Gardaí lying and making up evidence, which fortunately, because people fought it, uh, was overturned. Now, the, my point is, when people go through that experience, you can draw one of two conclusions. One is, what's the point fighting? Because look what they'll do to you. Or the other point is, you can learn how the police, the media, and the establishment operate, and you can start thinking, we're going to strategize. And that's really a very key element that I think needs more emphasis today. One of the things we know that elites strategize, they think very carefully, they have, they have think tanks, they think how they prepare their arguments and so on. What is often lacking today in uh, those at the bottom of society, the working class, is spaces where people think, how are we going to win? Because ultimately it's about winning. It's not about fighting the good fight and yes, losing. Yes, yes. It's about winning. And I guess that really was the heart of my yeah. question. How, 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 can we, how can young people, or any people, who have not yet been politicised, effectively go about it? What is the most effective way to do it? At the least loss to yourself. Now maybe in the event of those two young lads in Jobstown, maybe that was the most... Maybe that, that has made them really, really political. Or... Maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll talk to them at some stage. You know, like maybe on the other hand, maybe it made them less inclined. Maybe it made them really, really want to take a step back and say, "Oh no!" And and also, I'm thinking about the knock-on effect for the people within their community. Do they say, "Oh, we actually have to stand up stronger against this now," or we have to actually be try to think about a different way of engaging because we don't want this to happen again? Um, because I'm sure that was a very draining experience to have to go through never-ending amount of court cases and newspaper articles and everything else that goes along. I mean, you've got your own life to lead as well at the same time, whether they were in university or school or, um, I don't know, what else they were, they were trying to get on with. They're, they're just their lives, you know? Well, I agree with you absolutely on that. Now, I may just add, so therefore, in that situation, do you not begin to understand the nature of the state? Because, I'm putting that rather grandly, right? But we, we, we go to school and we're told the state is there for the common good. But then contrast the treatment of young people in Jobstown with, for example, Charlie Hawhey. We all know from the records, Charlie Hawhey was taking bribes from the um, Dunn stores in order to cut their tax bill. That's just a fact. It's in the tribunals. 
Now, why didn't the state go after any of the people involved in, in, with the same vigour as Jobstown? So now, if we look at that case, we know the state does not represent the common good. It represents the ruling class. It defends privilege and it defends uh, the ruling class. Now, realising that can mean, oh my God, how are we ever going to deal with it? Because I thought we could get people into the doll and, if you like, get They'd the state to... some kind of power. The state would help us. Mm. And now we realise, oh my God, that's not the situation at all. They're all in it together. I think, and it's not... I agree with you, of course people can say, and that's why the state does these things. Christ, I'm giving up. Uh, I personally would be arguing, and I think that in, the, in Jobstown, people for profit and solidarity do argue this because they're based there and they try to encourage people to do it, that if the state is so hard on working class people, we have to develop a space, a political organisation, where we think of strategies to win. And ultimately, those strategies are about involving masses of people, uh, understanding that we have collectively more power uh, than them, because that has been the historic experience. Now, you then say, to, what does all that mean for a young person in school? Think, well, first of all, rebel. You, you can't just say, I have to read all the books before I rebel. First of all, rebel. And then, as you rebel, keep thinking about winning and developing strategies. That's how it has been done always in the past. It's not as if you know, there's some book that tells you how to uh, win a struggle. I've never found such a book, right? Uh, but what happens with working class people, whether in the unions, in community organisations and so on, is that as people start to fight, they also develop a collective consciousness and debates and discussion about how best to win. And sometimes, by the way, they come up with the good ideas that do manage to win. But this all depends, um, and thank you for that, that's great. Um, thank you for answering my question about what the most effective way to, to go about it. And I guess it's just start. Mm -hmm. Start by voicing, mm -hmm. you know, the things that you feel are wrong in society. And that's mm -hmm. enough of a start to kind of get you going. Yeah. Write a letter, you know, um, begin a petition, something like that. Start talking to your mates. Yeah, Do something it. collectively. <laughs> but yeah, no, so, so that, that, that is it. It's collectively. And it's a, a, I guess a lot of Marx stuff is kind of focused on the idea of the class struggle. But that would mean that there needs to be a common understanding that we are all part of the same class. For example, a large base of working class. Yeah. Can I ask, in Ireland... Is it changing? I mean, I feel like maybe 100 years ago or 70 years ago or even maybe 50 years ago, if you said working class people, people were proud to say, I'm, I'm from the working class. I work to make my money. Um, and that there was a strong basis of that. And I feel that there, it's divided now. You know, that, that a lot of people are aspirational about their class. They want to be they want to be lower middle class or maybe even middle class. And, and maybe even working class people don't accept um, people who aren't working then as part of the lower or, or as, as the working class. They would say that that is the underclass or that I've heard very many different phrases, the welfare class and this kind of thing. So well, I guess my question is to what extent, I mean, I know England would be considered a very distinctive class society. People know their class, whereas I think maybe a lot of people in Ireland are misguided, I guess, a little bit in thinking that this really isn't a class society at all, that we're all kind of from a common kind of background, but I don't know. I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on well, that. Well, that, that is the ideological project of the Irish elite, and the term middle class is a term that is used extensively in America, 
to essentially stop talking about working class. Now, when you ask what does the word middle class mean, I'm a bit of an academic pedant here, but what does the word middle class mean? Am I middle class if I'm working in a call centre and getting 300 euros a week? Am I middle class if I'm the sort of a, a board of director uh, or a, a manager? So it covers a wide variety. So therefore, it's a very confusing term, uh, which is why, to some extent, it's promoted by the media and the establishment. So for me, the working class is anybody who has to sell their labour and whose labour is controlled by other people. So if you work in a call centre, if you're a teacher, right? Let's look at a teacher today. A teacher in the past used to be seen as, oh, we must, they're on a bit of a pedestal. Uh, and um, we have to respect them and so on. These days, a teacher, on average, will spend seven years after they graduate uh, going from contract to contract, uh, sort of uh, groveling to principals, uh, making sure they try to get the job and so on. And the same pattern applies to nurses uh, who are constantly, uh, if you like, uh, oppressed by paperwork, social workers who are more audited and monitored and so on. So the more you talk about the middle class, the actual reality is that a lot of these supposed middle class jobs are being treated the same way working class people were treated for many years. They are working class jobs in my view. They're precarious, uh, they're often low pay, uh, increasingly low pay. Uh, I mean, think about somebody who leaves UCD. You're probably at this point, uh, I'm not talking about everybody, obviously, but let's say you do a degree. Sorry, I don't want to depress people. Let's say you want to do a degree in arts. You'll probably be asked to do some other course afterwards, and then you'll be encouraged to go into the financial services, where you'll get a wage of, what, 27000 a year or so, and you'll be kind of told, don't leave the office before 7 o'clock, because you'll be letting, you won't be seen to show commitment, and then you'll find you're still living at home, uh, because you can't afford the rents or you can't stay for a house. Now you're telling me that these people are privileged. Uh, in reality, people are being drawn into the working class. So in my view, the working class is growing because it's composed of both white collar and blue collar manual and people who work in offices. But do people, uh, do people accept that they're working class, I guess, is my that's my question. Do, are, are, do people believe that they're working class or do they, are, are, are people kind of avoiding admitting that they're working class. I mean, I feel like there used to be a pride associated with being working class, you know, like that, because it meant you worked, you worked a hard day's work to earn your money and there was a decency that came with that. Whereas I feel the, the meaning of working class has changed somewhat over the years. There's an element of truth to that. I think you're, I mean, that particularly was the case with craft workers, with plumbers, carpenters, and so on. These, contrary to sometimes academics and universities, were extremely clever people, very creative people, and had a pride in their work and a pride in the communities they came from. You're absolutely right about that. And you're right that that has, the, the culture of our society has, if you like, tried to erode that sense of self and the. Uh, the Richard Self, I think, writes about this quite a lot. Richard Sinnott, sorry, Richard Sinnott. Um, but, okay, fair enough. Uh, so capitalism is pretty nasty and it changes the culture and it uh, encourages people to devalue themselves and we are supposed to admire these financial engineers. I mean, my God, what a ridiculous concept. A financial engineer, somebody in a suit, is more important. This is just nonsense, right? But that's the type of ideology thrown at you, but it doesn't take away from the material facts 
that somebody working on a desk in the computer services day is on relatively low pay compared to the rents they have to pay, is precarious, and has been forced to work longer hours. I mean, if you told, talk to a sort of old-style, manual, working-class person from the 60s and say, listen, there's kids, I shouldn't use the word kids, there's people, young people today working until 7 o'clock in offices because they're afraid to go home in case they're showing lack of commitment and they won't get the bloody uh, permanent contract. They'd laugh at you. They'd say, what the hell is going on here? I mean, I teach students here and I often ask them, um, so you work in a supermarket and you work on Sundays, did you get double time? And they look at me and they think, I've got two heads, what's double time? Double time is you're right if you work on days of leisure. So they have eroded trade union consciousness uh, amongst layers of people, I'm not denying that, but the material reality is that people are being treated worse today than, for example, organised workers were in the past. So therefore, you're all parts of the working class yes. and you better get, yourself, get your act together. Listen, uh, Professor Allen, thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. Um, uh, so I'm just very conscious that, you know, we're kind of heading towards nearly an hour of chatting here now at this stage. But, you know, just kind of going back to that point that I made about the two young lads in... in um, Jobstown and you know giving some advice and you know I, I in no me uh, sense mean to kind of take away that you're like obviously as I said you know you're an academic and you have a you know all of this kind of academic weight behind you you're a professor in UCD or whatever but the reality is you're doing it's difficult no matter what level you're at whether you're a 17 year old guy in Jobstown or your professor here at UCD to stand up against the status quo and outwardly speak out consistently against that so I guess just to leave it on a nice note, can you give us a little bit of advice? If you had to give any advice to young people who are starting out and thinking about a career in politics or society or thinking about maybe coming to UCD or any other institute to, to learn more about these things, what would you say your biggest piece of advice is for them? Shall I go back to Jobstown first? I think it's a very important <laughs> yeah, issue. Right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm an academic. I've been an academic here for a number of years. But I'm also a political activist. I mean, I regard my academia as not as important as political activism. And uh, I'm glad to say that I'm part of a party, People Before Profit, that in the main is composed of working people. And I'm glad to say that one of our councillors represents Jobstown. In other words, the people of Jobstown have elected a People Before Profit person who would make the exact same arguments that I'm making. So the idea that academics make these arguments, whereas working class people... Uh, don't or can't liberate themselves, I would challenge. What's oh, no, sorry, yeah, that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't yeah, the point now yeah, I was making. Yeah. The point I was making was that you, as a professor in UC, yeah. UCD, you may enjoy uh, a different... Yeah, they can't sack me as easily. Yeah. Well, this kind they, of thing. They give you, you a know, license to yes, speak. Yeah, yeah, that first. was it. Not, I wasn't, just, I wasn't implying... If you, if you stand up an intel or something... I wasn't things. implying that you're any smarter right, than a working class right, person. Good. Thank you very much. But... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, if you stand up in some place, they'll sack you for things I'm saying here. What would I say to young people uh, to be, about being political? No, yeah, well, yeah, well, I guess about what advice that you have from your life. Um, life. You know, like, what has been rewarding for you? What would you say to young people who are starting off on their career now? On a career? In sure terms I, of I'm politics. Not sure I ever start on a career. In terms of politics <laughs> and society. I, I think that... Uh, First of all, go with your instincts to show disrespect for authority, including professors. Just, just have a basic instinct. It's a good instinct, and they often try to knock it out again. Secondly, I'm not against education, I'm for education, and showing, being a rebel and showing disrespect for authority 
does not mean taking some of the advantages that are given by the formal education system. Mm -hmm. Reading books is great. Uh, having time to think is great. Uh, training your mind to um, develop your own arguments that will express your passion is good. So do study. Yeah, I, mean, I know it sounds... Yeah, I think I always encourage people to study, whether they're left-wing activists or so on. Study, read the book, study, try to get the goddamn exams. Uh, if you can get into, and you don't necessarily have to read either. I mean, there's fantastic YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Things, Sorry, you know, I'm, like, I'm, I'm reflecting. I'm reflecting yeah. my age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like no, just even for myself. You absolutely. know, sometimes you know, like if I'm doing nothing at home and I yeah. I, I want to do something interesting. I mean, there's fantastic. You know, um, lecturers, Harvard, UCD, any. Uh, Good Institute has, you know, like interesting speakers who like do a lot of their lectures online as well. So you no, can you're, you're, you're absolutely right. That. And you can go from yeah. a two-minute clip to absolutely. a two-hour clip, you know, and just start off small. Yeah. yeah. So take some time as well as watching whatever you... I don't people watch television these days. <laughs> but take some time to look at these interesting YouTube clips or uh, podcasts or books uh, because the more you broaden your mind the more equipped you are to fight for the things you believe in. Uh, so I would certainly encourage people to do courses. And lastly, when you do get on these courses, especially at university, do not think that academics are uh, nowhere. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest about this, and I keep saying it to people. I have more discussions with working class people from areas like Georgetown, uh, or Darndale, or Ballymont, who want to fight and understand the world than I'd have sometimes with academics who live in an ivory tower. So when you do get to uh, university, challenge the academics to try to start pessimism or fatalism sometimes they that is absolutely fantastic. Um, Karen, thank you so much for taking part in the podcast today. Um, greatly appreciated. 